A good Monday to you. It's May the 9th, and uh, this is Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson, John Hicks with you. Good morning. Uh, good morning, pal. I'm, I'm usually good for, for at least one of these a year. A good old coffee spill approximately 10 to 30 seconds before I'm about to do something. And uh, I, I'm um, I'm kind of excited, actually, <laughs> for two reasons. Number one, I've spilled coffee all over my show notes, which is quickly turning them into this sort of abstract-looking, ambiguous sort of a, <laughs> a piece of art here. Uh, but also, you know what's even more significant is that when it happened, and, and this spill is just extremely recent, very recent, no time to react mm-hmm. as we get set to go live here on this Monday, um, it's not phasing me one bit. I'm just good. I'm feeling really positive about this Monday and positive about this week. How was your weekend? I had a good weekend and you know, it sets you up for the Monday, doesn't it? It Because we're having a very chill morning. We got everything done. We had 20 minutes to sit around. Don't know what to do with ourselves. Listen to some jazz. So yeah, I appreciate that. We've been all the other folks in the building where the studio is are going to start wondering what's up. The the (laughs) smell of fresh coffee, coffee from, from Yegg Coffee Club and jazz. And it's like, what are these guys just hanging out, putting their feet up on a Monday morning? I thought you were going to say the smell of something else. Yeah, <laughs> it's not that chill. <laughs> not yet, anyway. Uh, we've got a great show in store. We're going to pick up where we left off on a story last week. Remember, if, if you tune into all of the shows or if you caught the one with Jessica Scott Reed, mm-hmm. she's an animal rights advocate. She's a, a freelance journalist. She was on talking about avian influenza, specifically calling methods, a story out of Iowa that broke a farm that had called about 5.3 million chickens but it was the way it was done that was infuriating a lot of people it got conversations started and of course the way that we roll here on the show we said we've got conversations booked for example with chicken farmers of canada and uh, lisa's going to join us lisa bishop spencer in just a few minutes and then we wanted to broaden the conversation because that's a bigger part in my mind of what real talk brings to the table is the longer form uninterrupted casual see what happens type conversations and so a couple that farms relatively close to us in Sturgeon County Alberta Jeff and Coralie None are going to join us in approximately 30-35 minutes time to take us into their family farm so to speak and to talk about it they're in the dairy business dairy gets its fair share of criticism as well from animal rights advocates and so we want to ask some straight up questions you can chime in and of course uh, play a role in where this conversation goes we'll be keeping an eye on our hashtag real talk RJ our live chat as well we've got some international stories to cover this week we're going to be taking a look at what canadians are doing across ukraine the prime minister dropping down in ukraine for a quick visit over the weekend not just him the first lady too jill biden you too yeah you see bono in the edge like in a train station hey where there's people suffering bono's there (laughs) sometimes (laughs) bono's kind of feels like he feels like he's been out of the mix for a while it was cool to see him doing it again it brought back memories of the 1980s where they you two would do these like pop-up shows you remember their famous video i think where the streets have no name on the rooftop it's like one of the most legendary videos of all time and by the way, crypto's down too, and people are trying to figure out, is this because of inflation? Is this because of what's going on with the NASDAQ? Is crypto hit with, you know, when tech stocks drop, crypto does try to make sense of it. If you took a look at your Bitcoin wallet or your crypto wallet today or over the weekend, you went, what is going on right now? What's causing this? Some people are like, do I need to sell off? Other people are going, it's a great time to buy. I like the no-nonsense analysis I get from Benny and his team members at Bitcoin Well. You can find them. I'm not telling you to buy Bitcoin. I'm not telling you to sell your Bitcoin. I'm saying (laughs) talk to Benny and get a sense of where they believe this is all going. You'll find them under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. (laughs) 
yeah, surprise over the weekend for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, if you're the, the leader of a, a, a well, matter doesn't matter what country it is, but if you're an international leader, you can't exactly announce when you're going to be dropping in on a war zone to to send a message and to show your nation's support and to, to get a sense of what things look like on the ground. But the Daily Mail and other international outlets reporting uh, the Canada's prime minister, and you've seen the photos by now, Justin Trudeau, uh, walking around in public uh, in uh, Ukrainian uh, or rather in uh, in suburbs of Kiev, uh, in particular, uh, a city that has that has uh, been bombed uh, relentlessly by the Russians uh, over the past number of days. And of course, this is a big day in Russia, too. Have you seen this? It's it's victory day in Russia, where typically that nation celebrates uh, a war victory over the Nazis in World War II. And, of course, there was some speculation, this reporting out of the Globe and Mail, Mark McKinnon, who does a great job there as their international uh, correspondent, that, that Russia and Vladimir Putin was looking to make a, a big statement on Victory Day. And today the claim is that the invasion of Ukraine was a success. <laughs> but, of course, it's described as a muted Victory Day speech because the evidence would suggest otherwise, wouldn't it? Uh, the evidence... Of course, is that despite the fact that 11,000 troops and more than 130 military vehicles took part in this big celebration uh, through Red Square today, um, that's, you know, down. The numbers are down from previous Victory Day celebrations, 22,000 troops, almost double a couple of years ago. But but this is, you know, a symbol a lot of people are saying a symbol of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It says a lot that the numbers are down, that it's more muted now, the Russians are saying that the the uh, warplanes didn't roar over Moscow in their flying Z. This is that controversial symbol, Russia's main symbol yeah. of the invasion of Ukraine. They're saying because of weather. Uh, that's why the warplanes weren't there, although the skies were clear over Moscow. Now, what's the real point here? The real point is that there's been unexpectedly fierce resistance encountered by the Russians since uh, Vladimir Putin ordered his forces into Ukraine back on February 24th. Hard to believe it's been that long already. The Prime Minister of Canada sending a message that Canadians are supporting. Check this out from his Twitter account. This was posted just a few minutes before we went live today. Uh, says the Prime Minister of Canada, update, the Canadian flag is once again flying over Canada's embassy in Kiev. We raised it yesterday to symbolize the formal return of Canada's diplomatic presence in Ukraine. So that's a big deal. And then the PMO posting photos of the prime minister himself raising that flag. Um, Justin Trudeau, the deputy prime minister, Christian Freeland and uh, Minister Melanie Jolie also meeting with uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. And we'll be talking through the week about some of the work that Canadians are doing in Ukraine, including a submission. Uh, John, you wanted to enter something. We'll see it a little bit later in the show today. We'll get into this in positive reflections presented yeah. by Kubi Energy. But a lot of people, a lot of Canadians just sort of average ordinary hit. everyday folks doing what they can yeah it's awesome so we're, we'll talk about that later and hopefully uh hopefully more people do that i mean it's just little things they need at the border and stuff right that, well it's uh, easy to contribute yeah. right because because all these folks like your pal nestor who will shine the spotlight on in positive reflections as part of it don't worry becky we got your submission too and i'm looking forward to that your little guy this is awesome caitlin uh caitlin is uh hunter's uh, or rather, pardon me, Caitlin's the mom, Hunter's the son. I'm, I'm already getting into positive reflections. That's coming like an hour. I need to just chill out. I'm excited to get to it. We do this on Mondays, stories that fill our hearts and fill our spirits. There's also a story that broke over the weekend. I wanted to talk to you before we get to our interview uh, with Chicken Farmers of Canada. Lisa's going to join us and, and we'll get into avian influenza. You know that there's two million birds. They're closing in on two million birds 
that are dead in Canada as a result of this. They've had to be called, including in Alberta, almost half of them in our home province of Alberta. But a story reported by the National Post, I also wanted to get this going early in the show to get your takes on this. And this is the subject of an unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll that I've posted on my official Twitter profile right now. We posted it just a few minutes ago and we were already at, you know, 400 plus votes. And so I want I wanted to get to this. Let me let me tee it up before we show you the poll itself. Uh, The National Post reporting that Canadians movements and this is months back, uh, including trips to the liquor store. Uh, trips to the pharmacy, trips to see your friend, or, or even for some of you staying home, uh, for some of the Canadians that were, do I say surveilled? Maybe not tracked, that were logged, their movements were logged. It was cross-border travel, in particular in in uh, the greater Vancouver area, like Abbotsford, where people cross the border to gas up or get their groceries, that sort of a thing. Well, Canadians were tracked via their mobile phones without their knowledge through the pandemic, so says a report sent to a parliamentary committee. Uh, this was sent by uh, Parliamentary Secretary Adam Vancouver, and former Canadian Olympic great, and we put in a request to speak with him. We hope to talk to him this week. Uh, outbreak intelligence analyst Blue Dot, this is the third party, this is the group Blue Dot, uh, prepared these reports using what they say is anonymized data for the Public Health Agency of Canada to help it understand travel patterns during the pandemic. So they say your phone number was not logged, your name was not logged, but your movement was. So they'd be able to say, for example, and I'm just making these ones up, but they would say over the course of this month of the pandemic, month X, trips to pharmacies doubled or trips to these particular pharmacies tripled or trips to liquor stores were way up or trips to liquor stores were way down or more people were staying home or double the amount of people we expected actually met with friends or gathered in groups. They would say, well, we don't know if you're meeting with friends, but we would be able to tell that there was a group gathering. Now, the federal government provided these reports to the House of Commons Ethics Committee. There's ethics involved in this, obviously, as there are in most things. But the committee is probing the collection and the use of this data by the public health agency. So says Damien Curick, who's a conservative MP out of Battle River Crowfoot. Questions remain about the specifics of the data provided if Canadians' rights were violated and what advice the Liberal government was given. Now, the Public Health Agency of Canada is saying, well, it's not about following individuals' trips. It's, it's rather understanding whether the number of visits to specific locations have increased or decreased over time. They say, for example, all we would receive data-wise is the location of the point of interest, so like Ma and Pa's liquor store, and the number of visits for a certain day. Says the CEO of Blue Dot, a fellow by the name of Kamran Khan, quote, our only goal is to help protect lives and livelihoods from infectious diseases, which requires intelligence about overall trends in populations. Goes on to say the data and analysis we provide are indicators, statistical summaries of anonymous device information, like the total number of devices traveling between the two cities. So the question is, does this raise red flags with you? Are you okay with being tracked? And I think the word fits because that's what it is. Are you okay with being tracked so long as it's kept anonymous? Do you believe or do you trust that it is kept anonymous? I don't think you have to be a conspiracy theorist to start thinking down the line about how other applications of this might play out. You know, for example, the ability of officials in relatively real time to track when 
where and how many people are gathering together in a specific circumstance. I don't think you have to be a conspiracy theorist to wonder if that might blow up in your face as a private citizen, to wonder if that might be an infringement on your rights. But then on the flip side, if it's a bunch of friends sitting around a campfire talking about this, some would probably say, yeah, but the public health agency needs data. It needs to be able to make informed decisions. It would be valuable for public health officials to know if Canadians, way more Canadians are going to the liquor store, right? There could be mental health implications there. There could be public health implications there. Perhaps public health messaging needs to be updated through the course of a pandemic to address some of these trends. So we're asking you about that in today's unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll. And you can find it on my profile at Ryan Jesperson. I've asked you. With Canadians traveling to pharmacies, liquor stores, and family gatherings tracked via their phones, are you cool with this? Uh, 546 votes right now with 23 hours left to go in it. 34% of you say yes, cool with it. Data's important. 39% of you say no, I'd feel violated. And 27% of you early in this poll say, "Eh, I'm not sure how I feel. So I'm going to call that, for all intents and purposes, almost an even split across the board right now. Those of you that are concerned, those of you that aren't, and those of you that aren't quite sure. Now, on purpose, John, we ignored talking about this. We, we refrained from talking about this before the show because I wanted to pick your brain as we were putting the show in front of our friends, in front of Real Talkers today, with the information that you have in front of you. Would you be cool being tracked as part of this sample, or does it weird you out a little bit? I think I'm in the middle. I think data is important, especially in this day and age, but it's always weird to see that Big Brother knows when you're buying a six-pack or when you're, you know what I mean, going to pick up your prescription. It just, it's always going to make people feel weird, but I do believe in this day and age, we need more data. We need more information on everything, so. I hope Lisa doesn't mind. Maybe I'll ask her when we go to her in just a second. This is not what she's here to talk about. But I just want to ask Canadians. I want to ask people how they feel. You can chime in. You know where to get us. If you'd rather take a little bit more time, go on at length, provide a few examples, give us something to chew on. Our team, as we're putting future shows together, you can always send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We'll talk avian influenza in just a quick second. I wanted to let you know how grateful I was to have a chance to meet so many of you at opening night at Northwest Fest. That was at Metro Cinema on Friday night. Real Talk was so proud to present who you're going to call the story of ray parker jr it was great to have him in the house with us alongside filmmaker fran strine northwest fest now officially kicked off it runs through till may 15th including some great shows you've got to make sure you check out the full lineup right now at northwestfest.ca some of the films coming up this week include this much i know to be true it's a must see for the many fans of nick cave and of course on may 14th that's the closing night film on the fringe celebrating canada's love affair with fringe festivals that'll get you in the mood for summer for festival season and tomorrow on real talk you won't want to miss a tuesday a special panel discussion love in the time of fentanyl we're going to get into the opioid crisis what it means and what storytellers are doing to ensure that the public knows what's going on Speaking of health and healthcare, our friends at Infinity Healthcare are in the business of home care. And not only are they using their personality matching service to ensure that clients are getting the best possible match when it comes to their home care provider, but they're also always hiring. If you go to the career opportunities menu at infinity-8, 
www.lpnmedicalaid.ca, you'll be able to see job postings for healthcare aides, LPNs, customer care navigators, and the Infinity Healthcare Ambassador. You can find all the details on contacting there or give them a call right now at 780-809-7884. And it is time to start getting serious about what your outdoor space is going to look like this summer. Eden Landscaping in the business of bringing outdoor spaces to life. Their teams are already pedal to the metal, taking the designs they've been working on and turning them into reality. The best part about dealing with Eden Landscaping, you deal with them all the way through from conception, design, the ideas, maybe your Pinterest board that you've been keeping through till the last shovel leaves the lot. They're not out of there until you're completely satisfied. It's why so many of their customers refer them to their friends. That's Eden Landscaping at Landscape Edmonton. Well, this is one of the stories, uh, certainly, that a lot of Canadians are keeping an eye on, maybe not leading the news cycle, but it's very significant. The death toll when it comes to poultry as a result of avian influenza is just shy of two million birds, including 900,000 of them, almost half in Canada, an outbreak that has touched and impacted 23 farms in Alberta alone. Ontario also really seeing the impact of this avian flu. Uh, We're grateful that Lisa Bishop Spencer's agreed to join us this morning with Chicken Farmers of Canada. Lisa's also a certified crisis consultant that helps manage avian influenza here along with the National Poultry Group. So she's here working with Canadian poultry and egg sectors, making her Real Talk debut. Lisa, it's great to have you here this morning. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having me. I got to say that I'm a little bit... Uh, jealous that he got a chance to meet Ray Parker Jr. because I would have loved to have been there. <laughs> oh my gosh, are you familiar with his story? He's like the, no. the the Ghostbusters song guy, right? So he's he's telling us like the the premise of the film is that yeah, he wrote one of the most successful songs of all time. It was the number one song of 1984. It's obviously, I mean, it sold 10 million copies. The record did in its first few months. Um, but so much uh, more. And when it comes to the other elements of career, uh, you know, when you sort of evaluate the breadth of somebody's work or, or their CV, like this guy was on tour when he was 17 with Stevie Wonder, Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones. I mean, it's just an unbelievable story. That's great. Hey, let me ask you, I want to put you on the spot about something. This has nothing to do with avian influenza or flu, but you're just like a real life human and I'm a real life human. Um, This story we were talking about in the National Post, Canadians, without their knowledge, having their phones or their movement tracked by way of their phones, the public health agency says it was kept anonymous and it was in order to help them make public health decisions. Does something like that raise red flags with you or is that something where you go, ah, it's for the greater good. They need the information. I'm okay with it. I mean, if it truly is anonymous, then I'm okay with it because I love data and I think data is really useful in order to be able to make good, you know, policy decisions. So, you know, but there's, you know, there's, there's that question. Is it truly anonymous? Yeah. That's what I'm kind of wrestling with. I go, well, yeah, I mean, I can understand the value of the data. We need that. We're, you and I are about to talk about data. Um, and at the same time, I can see where this could be misused. I'm going to be curious to see where real talkers land on this. Let's talk about avian influenza. Uh, avian flu is what everybody's referring to it as. It's obviously a huge deal uh, down in the United States. The numbers are in the tens of millions of birds called in Canada, closing in on two million right now, uh, including almost a million in our home province of Alberta. Can you give us a lay of the land up to the minute on this Monday? Uh, not up to the minute. The last number that I had at the end of last week was about 1.8 million birds. 
And so what, like, how does something like this happen? An outbreak that's hitting 23 farms right now. How does it get to this point? What do we know about how it started, how it was introduced and how it's spreading? So avian influenza is a, it's a, a disease that is experienced by birds. So what we know is that most of Canada is within what we call a migratory flyway. So those birds um, that are coming up from the U.S. or from other parts of the world are, are now landing in Canada. So as a result of that, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're actually quite, you know, um, it's, it's a virulent virus this year and it's being, it's being impacted like by migratory birds as well. So those birds are getting sick and those birds are spreading the virus to domestic poultry. And how are farmers or how are producers recognizing it or seeing it on their farm? What, what happens or is, is it a symptom that they see in one bird and then they have it tested? Yeah, so pretty much what will happen is as a part of their mandatory on-farm food safety program, the birds will have to, the, the farmers will have to walk through the barn several times a day. And when they start to notice symptoms, so these birds have some pretty extreme symptoms, it's a very, very uh, fast moving virus. So a farmer will walk through the barn, notice either increased mortality in the barn or that these birds are showing symptoms. So he'll pick up the phone or she'll pick up the phone and they'll call their a veterinarian and their veterinarian will come and then they'll they'll say this might look like avian influenza and then they'll take samples and those samples will go to either a provincial lab and then they'll, ultimately they'll be confirmed at the national CFIA lab in Winnipeg if those virus if that if that virus comes back as positive that's when we know for sure is there a, are, are there comparisons to be made or, or is there a contrast that you notice between now and what was hard to believe almost 20 years ago back in 2004 when the world was also talking about this exact same thing yeah, so the um, the first avian influenza in Canada was in 1966, actually, and then we didn't see anything about it until 2004, when BC was almost, you know, literally that industry was was almost wiped out by avian influenza. The virus is different. It's a it's a slightly different virus, and what we do know is that it's it's more pathogenic. It's more contagious among birds, and we're seeing. Like usually, um, migratory birds can um, they'll 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 have it in a low pathogenic form. So they the migratory birds themselves won't get sick, but they can they can you know, spread it to to poultry. This year, what we've noticed is that it's highly pathogenic even among the migratory birds. So people are finding migratory birds dead, you know, near a body of water, and those birds have tested positive as well. So um, this is the first time we've we've had avian flu in Canada off and on since 2004, every couple of years, usually in one province affecting one or two farms. But uh, what we've noticed now is that we have multiple, multiple viruses or multiple farms with the virus across Canada. It's the first time we've seen it in more than one province at a time. Really? So what, what are you reading into that or when it comes to learnings or, or sort of how the chicken farmers as an association or, or individually as entrepreneurs and business owners and producers? I mean, what are the implications there with regards to how you manage this? Right. So that's what, what's interesting this time is that CFIA is telling us that there's not a lot of what we call lateral spread of the virus. So the virus isn't spreading from farm to farm. The virus is just coming in from wild, from wild birds. So that's really interesting. That points to the fact that a lot of the biosecurity measures that we've taken into account on farm are working. Right. And but the issue is that what do we do about these wild birds? Yeah. And so what do you do about the wild birds? I, like is this is avian influence. I've been I've been reading and I'm not a doctor, uh, but I've been reading that this is something that maybe humans won't directly be impacted by. But if you have wild birds dying and then, you know, scavengers are eating those carcasses, I mean, does this become a bigger problem that that spreads outside certain species? 
I'm not really sure about the epidemiology of it. What I do know is that in order to catch avian influenza, you have to be in some pretty intense contact with those birds, yeah. right? So if you are sort of just a person walking down the street next to a, a barn, then that's not going to be an issue. If you're, you know, if you're coming across a, a dead wild bird, don't pick it up, call somebody. Uh, that would be my best advice. And then I think that we just have to bear in mind that, you know, this, is, this, is, this isn't a human health issue. This is a flock health issue. This is an, an, a, like an animal care issue. We want to make sure that we try to keep it out. So basically the, the motto that farmers live by between, you know, when, when, when avian influenza time happens, which is in the spring and in the fall, um, the motto is if it's in, keep it in. And if it's out, keep it out. What does this mean, do you think, for supply uh, with regards to what Canadians can expect on availability of of protein, of chicken, essentially, uh, and, and also, I mean, sort of longer term grocery costs as well. Right. Things like this can oftentimes have an impact at the actual till. What do we know at this point? So we get a lot of these questions um, lately in particular, just because the, the you know inflation and all of these costs that are mm-hmm. coming into play. But the, you know, the one advantage that we have in the Canadian poultry and egg industry is, in fact, the supply management system. Now, I know people have a lot of opinions about that system, um, but I, I really do want to point to the fact that the ability and the flexibility of the supply management system to adjust supply is tremendous. So I'm going to give you two examples. The first one is back in 2004. In 2004, we had avian influenza in BC, right? So I'm just going to talk from a chicken perspective, a chicken meat perspective. But all of those birds um, were either culled or they went to market as usual. But then the farmers were not allowed to restock their barn for a period of time. And what that ha- when that happened, that was 4% of the chicken market that was going to be left um, unmet. So what did we do? Well, we were able to adjust production and increase it in the rest of the country and then fill that gap. In contrast, in, in when COVID hit, Now, what's important to remember there is that 40% of chicken production in Canada is destined for food service. All of a sudden, we had all of these restaurants that were shut down, couldn't offer any any food service at all. So we were able to adjust production downwards in order to not oversupply the market with chicken that would then go bad and lead to food waste. So by having that, that ability to contrast and to adjust production, that helps a lot. So we have to remember that it's not all one species of bird that's being impacted by avian flu. It's being spread out, you know, relatively evenly among all of the commodities. So the, the fact that we have chicken producers in every single province leads to the fact that we can you know, adjust production if we need to. We're not there yet. It's only, you know, it, of the 23 in Alberta, I don't know how many exactly are chicken, but it's not all 23, right? So there are other farmers that can increase their supply if we need to in order to fill that gap. So um, supply is not an issue right now. So there shouldn't be any impact on price because of supply of, of avian influenza. Uh, Lisa, one of the reasons why I wanted to reach out to you is, uh, and, and, I, and I told you I wanted to ask you about this reporting in The Guardian, which we talked about last week on the show, that a, a U.S. egg factory, um, per the report on the headline in The Guardian, roasting alive uh, 5.3 million chickens in an avian flu call. And it, and it describes the method they used where essentially they, they shut off ventilation and cranked up the heat. And the description of how these chickens died was was rather appalling. 
And it was interesting to hear some people say, yeah, it's chickens like meh. <laughs> and other people kind of went, yeah, we don't know much about where our food comes from or how animals are treated. And if we did, we'd all be vegans. And then other people said, well, we should have room for conversation around ethics and production. And I heard from a lot of producers and farmers, uh, two of them who I'll be talking to right after I talk to you that said, hey, every once in a while, there's a, a horrific story that comes out of ag that kind of makes everybody look pretty bad. But the reality is it's not the type of thing that's happening with every operation. What can Canadians know or what can you tell us about calling methods in Canada and how the ethical treatment of animals uh, factors into decisions that are made along these lines? If you can comment on the story out of Iowa, I'd appreciate it, too. Sure. I can just tell you that in Canada, ventilation shutdown is not an approved method of culling birds in Canada. That's the first thing. A lot of people don't know that. Um, but at this point, CFIA has said no to ventilation shutdown as a, as a culling method. So right now, when birds are culled, they're culled with CO2 in the barn, not even a foam. It's just CO2 that's pumped into the barn, and then the birds go to sleep, and then they then they, they pass away. Um, and I think that, you know, um, like I said, a lot of people don't know that, but what we do know is that CFIA has said no, that's not the method of, of, of culling that we're going to use at this point. So what I mean, how does that how much more difficult does that make your job when a story like this one breaks in The Guardian? I think it's important that people understand that, you know, everybody's trying to manage this virus as much as possible. I mean, the fact is that, you know, the, the, the ultimate game, game, sorry, the ultimate goal has to be to to eliminate the virus, to eradicate it completely. And we have to, you know, we have to do what's what's right by the people and by the birds. And that's very difficult to manage. The farmers don't really have a say in, in sort of how that happens, right? Because as soon as the virus is detected on a farm, it's what we call a reportable disease. So it goes to the the OIE, which is basically the World Health Animal, the World Health Organization for, 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 for Agriculture. So when it goes to the OIE, CFIA, you know, automatically takes on, on the responsibility of ensuring that those birds are culled ethically and that they are composted ethically and that the barns are cleaned and disinfected. How do you look at this timeline wise? Like, is it possible to put a timeline on, on when, when poultry producers will be able to sort of put this behind them or right now, is it in such an active type dynamic an active type situation that it's tough to know how much longer this might be a problem? It is hard to know because, you know, usually we'll see, like I said, two or three cases in one province and then it kind of just goes away because what we've learned since 2004 has been so valuable for farmers to be able to to to, Im to impact or to, to implement on their farms. So what's the difference is that now we're dealing with, you know, a very, very virulent strain in and that's in, that it's in multiple provinces. So that becomes very difficult to, to, to manage at a national and a local level. So in terms of when it'll be over, I don't know, um, and, and no one really knows, but we are starting to see a little bit of a leveling out in the east, um, and we, because we, don't forget, we had cases in, in, in Newfoundland in December and in Nova Scotia in January, February, and we haven't had any, any repeats of those. So what we're hoping is that as the birds keep migrating and as things settle down, that we're going to crest and then we're going to start seeing a drop off. Lisa Bishop Spencer joining us from Chicken Farmers of Canada. Thanks for spending part of your Monday morning with us, Lisa. We appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks. Yeah, you bet. You can let us know what you think about this. Uh, we'll talk to Jeff and Corley. None, uh, interesting that supply management came up because we're about to talk to a couple yeah. of dairy farmers as well. And that's obviously these are the two industries that are that are most 
impacted by and, and governed essentially by that might not be the right phrase to use, but uh, supply management, a factor there. And I know that is a controversial one. So we appreciate your take. Talk at RyanJesperson.com, our email address. You can get to us anytime. I also want to check in. We've got a great conversation going with our real talkers joining us live this morning about the so-called. I don't I don't think it's it's uh, it's it, let me say it is disingenuous for me to use the word surveillance, but the tracking of Canadians by cell phones, either crossing the border, gathering in groups, going to the liquor store, the pharmacy staying at home through the pandemic to inform public health decisions and some great uh, conversations, some great contributions going there. And I want to get to those in just a second. Uh, before we talk to the no-nays, uh, let me remind you that Sherwood Dodge has the best selection of the most popular truck in Canada right now, and that is the Ram 1500. If your family is gearing up, getting ready to head out to the great outdoors, perhaps May long weekend is your family's official and traditional kickoff to camping or hiking season. Maybe you've got some angling that's going to go on. Maybe you're going to be heading out, pulling a trailer to that lot that you're going to raise your kids at every single summer. you got big dreams, but you got to get a rig to get you out there. Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge, you can shop them online right now. They're pre-owned and they're brand new trucks, Jeeps and Dodge vehicles, or of course you can go visit them in person as well. Make sure you let them know that Real Talk sent you to St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Park Power knows how important it is to deal with a friendly local utilities provider. That's why more and more people are getting their internet, electricity, and natural gas services from the company that is still independently and family owned. You can compare rates online right now. We recommend, I do personally right now, to get ahead of this volatility, the fixed rate options. You can get all the details online and when you bring your business to Park Power, make sure you use the promo code 2022 dash real talk it's going to get you 70 dollars off your first bill that is no joke i'm hearing ray parker jr right now that ain't no joke he said i'm afraid no ghosts <laughs> but i am afraid of <laughs> electrical bills that are way too high canada's online university is athabasca university and right now you know more than 40,000 canadians from coast to coast to coast are learning and preparing themselves right now for a competitive job market, a new landscape job market. Athabasca University, one of Canada's highest enrolled universities because it's so convenient. You register based on your plan. And if your plan changes, your availability, the time you have to commit on any given week or month to your studies, you just adjust it. What other post-secondary institution gives you that flexibility? I mean, the answer is none of them. You can learn more at AthabascaU.ca. The programs, the courses, the admissions process, and of course, some of the exciting research that's going on there. Uh, that was a great conversation uh, last week uh, with uh, Kelsey Ann that joined us. Yeah. We're talking about destigmatizing fat. We'll find all different angles on cool stuff going on at Athabasca University. Again, at AthabascaU.ca. A report in the National Post this weekend about this uh, third party, this uh, agency that the that uh, the Canadian government, specifically the Public Health Agency of Canada, tapped into. It's called Blue Dot uh, to glean information on how Canadians were essentially behaving, not in like a, a kindergarten type of way, like how is your behavior, but mm -hmm. what were our patterns showing? Where were we going? Were we going to the pharmacy more often, the liquor store more often, crossing the border more often, staying home or going out, gathering with friends more frequently. 
the data kept anonymous. So says Blue Dot, but it's raising <laughs> questions about how people feel about being tracked. And so we're asking you in today's unofficial unscientific Twitter poll on my uh, account at Ryan Jesperson, 792 votes as we speak. It's been up for just about an hour. Uh, are you cool with this? And the numbers are holding true, John. Uh, yeah. About 35%, let's call it one in three. Say, I'm cool with it. Data is important. 38%, so pretty much the same amount of folks say, no, nah, I'm not cool with it. I'd feel violated. And then 27% say, I'm not sure how I feel. Yeah, and I like this comment that's coming through on the uh, Real Talk YouTube chat here. Uh, it says, the concept of privacy is perceived differently by generations. That's so true because elder generations, you know, the boomers, they're kind of scared of losing privacy. And then you've got Gen Z and Gen X, and they're kind of like used to it. Not just used to it, but it's but part of their life. They volunteer yeah. the information. I think that's a really important point that was made there. You're right because a lot of people, you know, you're you're tagging not just where you are or where you're going, when you're going to be there, who you're with. I mean, it's you're sort of showing become, photos of you there, I mean, right? Yeah. Sort of, it's become part of this like social media. Do we call it like a disclosure culture? Yeah, or something like that. James says, "Let's be very clear." He's all caps, so I wanted to do it justice. He says the government bought this data from the same sources that track you every single day and is available to thousands of other sources it's only scary because it's the government says james <laughs> gilles says this has been happening for years google does this on your cell phone every single day he says check out google maps and google my business and jill's right yeah but i'm not sure that that means that people are cool with it or comfortable with it the mm -hmm. more time we spend thinking about it maybe the more it would freak us out yeah Something's not necessarily just okay because it's been happening for a long time. I'm more curious to know if it creeps you out a little bit when it does happen. But we give up certain, uh, I guess, rights to privacy. Corrine here says, if you have a debit card, a credit card, a phone, you're being tracked. I mean, that's just the way of the world today. Yeah, Ashley says, honestly, my phone is always listening and tracking me anyway. Says I'm not <laughs> concerned about it at all. Ashley says, we have Google Home and Alexa, and I know they are always listening. Somebody also commented if you're... Uh, commenting in the real talk chat right now you're also being tracked so <laughs> yeah well we've got a whole team behind the scenes that's putting together files on all of you be very afraid Hawes says it's a huge overstep yeah tracy same sort of a thing john you just brought up says we've been tracked with rewards cards telecommunication devices and, and to a degree government apps brenda says think of the satellites that are flying above us all the time gathering information darla says it's none of their business uh, Jim following up says, I trust the government a thousand times more than I trust Mark Zuckerberg. You think Mark Zuckerberg, you think Mark Zuckerberg's ever surprised at how much information people agreed to give him in startup? I mean, if you think about it, I don't it, think so. That's that's uh, probably part of the reason he's doing this. It's funny, though, like we want the, the you know, we want our privacy, but then we also want to see like our house on Google <laughs> and see our nice. We want the convenience courtesy of Eden landscaping uh, looking all well good played. in the summer. Right. So. Yeah. No, it's true. And I, you know, just the other day I was uh, sending some flowers. Baby, happy Mother's Day to those of you that celebrated. And for those of you that it's a really tough day, our thoughts are with you as well. I, I saw um, messages along both of those lines, people posting publicly yesterday and sharing where their hearts were at. Mm -hmm. And some of you, your hearts were full and some of you, your hearts are broken. And uh, days like that, I think community means more than anything. And so uh, today was a big day for a lot of people. Uh, but to bring this back, I was sending my mom. Uh, some flowers and uh, I, I was as I was talking to the uh, to, to the person that was going to deliver them to this this flower shop down in Calgary I realized I, I said I, I know like I, I can drive to their house all the time and everything 
I'm pretty sure I know the address, but I just want to double check it. Like I didn't have the postal code, not that I needed sure. it, but I just wanted to double check it. And so what did I do? I went to Google Maps and of course <laughs> I could see the photo of their house and I go, yep, that's their house. Yeah. Yep. That's the correct address. Yeah. But at the same time, someone would go, what are you doing snapping photos of my home? <laughs> What are you doing it's, posting photos of my house online? You know, it's, I mean, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Double-edged I mean, sword. Sometimes you're okay with it, and then other times you're like, "Why is my house perfectly pictured on here?" But uh, yeah, we've learned to live with it, right? So Haas says, just because people are okay with it doesn't mean it's right. Tracy says, not all Gen Z and millennials share freely. Many have clamped down on social media and clamped down on That's their phones as well, well. And I'm yeah. sure, probably more, maybe because of the the conversations like this. That we have where all of a sudden you realize you go, yeah, wait a second. That's not something that occurred to me. Mm -hmm. And I think during the pandemic that came out a lot, too, because people realized they were being watched. Their actions were being, you know, uh, scrutinized and things like that. And I can understand that as well. Yeah. Like you want to kind of stay off. I, I haven't posted much since the pandemic began, not because I'm out there, you know, flaunting the rules, but just it's people are very they scrutinize you very much for your actions these days. And so. I don't consider myself to be I'm not a paranoid type person. Mm. As a matter of fact, I'm probably not as paranoid as I should be um, with regards to like information that's available or, or information that's trackable or things like that. But at the same time, I do stories like this do get me thinking. And I think it's important to at least think about it and talk about it. Um, so it's, so it's at least on our radar, right? So it's something I think it's important whether or not you, wherever you land on something to at least talk about it, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, Pascali says, if, if you're scared that you're being tracked, then don't have a phone. All apps track. Just stay home with your tinfoil hat on. I mean, I don't know. Is it, is it tinfoil hat? Is it? I don't know. Are our next guests ready to rock and roll? They are ready to let, go. Let me ask them this. They, they're not showing up to talk about this, but I don't think they're going to mind at all. Jeff and Coralie None uh, farm together at Lakeside Farmstead in uh, beautiful Sturgeon County, Alberta. They're in the dairy business. They're in the cheese business. They're in the Wagyu Holstein Cross beef business. Uh, they do a whole bunch to keep uh, their fellow Canadians well fed and it's great to have them here on the show good morning to both of you thanks for making time for us today morning morning ryan uh you've heard our conversation here talking about uh, canadians movement being tracked anonymously so says the group doing it blue dot canada's public health agency says nothing to see here nothing to worry about we just want to make smart data informed decisions it seems to be split the respondents to our unofficial survey on twitter people that do care about it people that don't care about it and people that aren't sure how they feel about it. Coralie, do you have a, do you have a gut instinct on this one? How do you feel about the story? Oh, I'd say not sure, but yeah. I was a nurse for 21 years and I know a lot of research statistics and everything is based upon numbers. So I get what they would be doing, what they would be looking for. So to get answers, sometimes you need to know things. Jeff, are you, uh, are you the type to like lock down your phone and shut down your tracking or are you probably being tracked more than you realize? I think I do shut down my phone and, and, you know, avoid allowing all the apps to access my location. Like that's a constant battle, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're tiny here in Canada and we worry about it in larger countries. The notion you talk to people coming out of Asia, they're just like, who cares? I'm not that important. Track me. Like, you know, so what if I go get a cup of coffee? And I think the aggregate data is, something that's real for the public. I know in agriculture to kind of bend the bend it over towards that side, huge concerns over data being collected. All of our tractors come nowadays with, you know, J, J, uh, JD link, the John Deere link system. 
and uh, they want to track. So when you're combining in the field and harvest is coming in and they know what the yields are. And, you know, I've always wondered not so much from the privacy standpoint, but from who are they selling that data to and why am I not getting paid for it? Like, are the Chinese knowing how big the crop is before I get a chance to market it kind of idea? So from that side, it's going to be collected. It's just who has the right to my information? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and there's there's talk about that in our live chat as well. People talking about the monetized nature of this and how valuable data is uh, for people that want to target certain groups, certain demographics, or, or even like you said, with regards to market understanding, there could be huge implications. Uh, the reason why I wanted to invite both of you here, and I'm grateful that you've agreed to do it. We talked to Jessica Scott Reed, uh, a freelance journalist last week about these uh, chicken calls, these poultry, po- uh, poultry calls that are happening in the US and elsewhere, including right here in Alberta, uh, due to avian influenza. I want to be clear, you guys aren't poultry farmers. Uh, but Cora Lee, uh, well, both of you have been great friends of the show and you started to comment on our conversation and then all hell broke loose and people started talking about you as a farmer and a farming family, you guys, dairy farmers, of course, predominantly. Um, and, and it got me to thinking, you know, the whole point of real talk is to plant these seeds of discussion and, and then to allow them to germinate and grow and to have conversations where people represent different perspectives and to make us think about one angle and then think about the other. And so I'm, I'm grateful that you've agreed to join us. It's, it's obvious why many people are upset to hear that, you know, more than 5 million birds in an Iowa facility are, are essentially roasted to death inside barns where the ventilation's shut off and the temperature goes up. And, and we just talked to Lisa Bishop Spencer from Chicken Farmers of Canada, who clarified to us that that's not an approved message in Canada. But it's easy to understand why people are upset. And at the same time, it's easy to understand why producers and farmers like yourselves go, gosh, this is a tough look. This is a bad look for everybody and doesn't necessarily represent how we roll in our operation. How are you processing some of the controversy that unfolded on social media after you chimed in on my conversation with Jessica last week? Well, I, I guess I, when I chimed in, I kind of expected there would be pushback because the pushback by activists is always to make it as sensational, um, as heart-wrenching, as uh, terrible as it can be, which it was for us personally. Um, So it it was devastating. Like after our farm fire, it was really hurtful when someone said, um, I can't believe what people are posting on the articles and the, and the news. And it, um, I started to read comments and it was like a trauma on top of a trauma. And um, I get where people are coming from. I think nobody likes to see death, you know, in animals, agriculture, especially. So yeah, it's, uh, it was to be expected, um, but it still hurts every time. Let's, uh, let, let's provide some background for, for people that maybe aren't familiar with the story. I'm never going to forget that morning back in uh, 2017, Jeff, you and I were actually slated to, to do an interview uh, on my terrestrial radio show, radio show at the time. And you sent me a text message, I think an hour or two before we were supposed to talk, uh, letting me know that you weren't going to be able to do the interview because uh, your farm was, I mean, it, it was a nightmare in real life. Um, your barn had caught fire uh, with a whole bunch of your animals inside, more than 100 of your cows. Uh, obviously a devastating occurrence for your family, for your operation. And I saw and I have seen uh, in the years subsequent how it's impacted uh, you all. But it obviously did open up your farm for criticism 
didn't it? Uh, from people that are already critical of of relatively large farming operations. Jeff, how, how did you process not just the impact of that fire on your family and your organization, but what it did to some of the public dialogue, including some of the criticism of your operation right up until just this past week? Yeah, it's, you know, it's forever part of our history. And it's a good thing we had some of this discussion and brought up that last week, because otherwise it's still raw. You know, those emotions are right under the surface uh, for both of Corley and I, and I imagine for all of the staff that are still with us from then. And even the new staff, you know, the, the farm has moved on. And our kids. Um, I don't think we can even really understand how our kids processed all of that. It's impacting our lives forever. So by and large, I mean, the noisy people that want to be critical and, and take a, you know, a, really a, an accident and a disaster, um, you know, that, that happens. Uh, we're not the only farm, dairy farm to lose a barn and uh, to a fire. Ours was particularly devastating because of when it occurred and, and the number of animals that were lost. Uh, others fare a little bit better just by luck uh, of, of when things can happen. So, you know, I, I don't know, we're four heading to five years on in this thing, Ryan. And um, I don't know that you can ever really truly understand how it impacted us personally. Um, and the way people see us, you know, either with strength because we picked up the pieces and moved on or, uh, you know, more critically, if they think that animals should never be used uh, for agricultural purposes. Yeah, let me uh, I know. And I want to go there in our conversation about the, the future of farming and the future of food and and a lot of the movements and people have valid perspectives on how they feel about a lot of things. Uh, and, and the purpose of of this conversation is not to declare somebody to be right and somebody to be wrong. I want people to feel like they're hearing perspectives from across the spectrum. They can make their own decisions. But but Corley, here's an example of what, what you posted. Um, you posted this on May 4th following our interview. You said no one cares more about the animals on their farms than the farmers. Uh, it's not all about money, but of course it has an impact. Our farm fire was absolutely devastating to our family and our farm family. We still talk about it to this day. And you say Canada has the strictest, most regulated uh, rules under CFIA, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. Um, and someone by the name of, of uh, Kay Cressel uh, responded to you and said, the reason you care for the animals is because of the money they bring you. If they didn't bring you profit, I doubt the story would be the same. It's not only the regulations that need to change. It's the way that humans view animals despite your love for them you still view them as objects so how would you respond to that with regards to how you view your animals like number one it is a business it's a for-profit business uh, and everybody knows why the cows are there and ultimately what's going to happen to the cows but how do you as a family and, and, and as farmers how do you approach it and what is your relationship like with the animals is it like facebook might say is it complicated I think, it, you know what, there's only one, there's only one day and on our farm for the animals, there's only one bad day. That's our goal. Um, and that for me, you know, when, with the beef program we have is every second Thursday, there's a few animals that get taken to market. Um, I take them to market. I, you know, that's something that I've done from the beginning and it's real and it's hard. Uh, the guys at the abattoir, you know, uh, bless them for doing their job because I wouldn't uh, be able to have the attachment to the animals that I do and then, and then do their job as well. It's hard enough uh, just bringing them to market. So um, it, you know what, I think, I think depending on the farm and, and, and what it is there, there is and needs to be a degree of separation um, because of, because of the critical, you know, how critical people are about that nature of the business and it becomes more in the forefront 
However, humans have consumed animals for a long time. Uh, animal protein is a very important part of the entire food system. Um, that's the message I sent you when we kind of, you know, started that we, we should have more discussion because the reality is you can't just replace that protein and those calories with vegetables and fruits and, and plant-based diets, uh, certainly not very easily and not very well. So there's a lot of upcycling in, in the food system. There's, um, you know, byproducts of all kinds of things that we need to eat. Uh, and some of it gets controversial just in that regard. So palm, palm oil is in the majority of products that you're going to go find in your grocery store shelves. That's the oil base that, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, manufacturers use to in cooking and in preparing, you know, whatever cookies, pastries, etc. A byproduct of that is palm is palm fat. Um, which is upcycled and consumed by animals, uh, you know, across the world. And we got into that trouble with hard butter and, and uh, you know, all these things can cascade. But it, it shows you that everywhere around the world, Florida has citrus pulp that gets used in their dairy industry. Um, you know, wheat mids and things from processing wheat to, to feed humans is upcycled into the food system and used by the feed mills and returned back to animal agriculture. And it's a really critical part. It's a massive part of, of how the food system works and why it's efficient. Coralie, do you see, I, I mean, I, I see sort of two trends um, and I wouldn't say that either of them are necessarily bad. Uh, number one, I, I think people are starting to celebrate more local producers. They want to know it's that sort of idea of like from farm to fork and they want to know where everything came from. They want to see the farmer's faces. They want to know. I mean, you know, my cousin, uh, they grew carrots for a long time. I remember when they got their family photo on the bag of carrots in the grocery store. It was huge for them because they take such pride in their operation. I know it's the same uh, for your family and what you do with your cheese and your beef and, and, and all your other dairy products and everything else. So, th so there's that trend. And then there's the trend of people that are, that are starting to rethink their diets, that are starting to rethink, you know, how they interact with planet Earth and are starting to think about the footprints they leave. And that is impacting their diet and it is impacting what they buy and where they buy it from. So, Coralie, how do you process you as a family and you guys are entrepreneurs? How do you how do you process? How do you respond to what the market's looking for, to what consumers are looking for? And also, how do you get ahead of some of the objections that people have? You know, you must pay pretty close attention to what the general public is indicating in the context of how we eat and how we how we get it. Yeah, I just want to circle back real quick. And, you know, they say that our animals are objects. They're not objects. Um I drive by, the kids drive by. If we walk by, we talk to the girls, we talk to the boys, they have names. Uh, they're very curious, they come see us. Luke's favorite cow is Daisy and he gets her special treats and she literally stampedes over to see him. So it's like Jeff said, we try to give them the best care and uh, nurturing and that we can until that one bad day. And it, it is really hard to reconcile that for certain people. Um, we're not bad humans because we are in agriculture. We're not terrible humans. And some of the names they call us for being in agriculture, especially dairy is like just so skewed. So it's, I believe in choice, like everything. There's a lot in the news right now about choice, um, women's health, uh, all sorts of things. And the reality is when I looked up statistics of uh, vegans, it's about one to maybe 5% worldwide, uh, different percentages in different countries. So are we okay with taking away people's food choice 
And one article I even read is that the impacts of veganism actually affects the poorest countries. Like, are we okay with that? Like the countries that are have the highest number of vegans, I would say are richer countries. So are like, I think that should be part of the conversation. Huh? So do you like, with regards to how you plan out your, your, what you invest in as an operation, the direction that you take the strategy, uh, you know, I mean, even, even some of the things that you've taken on, I mean, opening a cheesery, for example, um, which I know took a big investment. Obviously, you're, you're going to want to be looking at trends. Uh, you're you're going to have to, to a certain degree, forecast where food production is going, uh, including with regards to consumer demand over the next 20 to 30 years. Um, and I'd be curious to pick both your brains on this, where you see the industry going or how you see it evolving over the next let's say, let's say right up until the time that maybe your kids take over the family farm. Where do you see it going, Jeff? So didn't, uh, I saw a little clip recently where uh, Elon, Elon Musk said he doesn't have a business plan. Um, I don't know. I, I guess you're right. I, it's probably underlined for us is our farm connecting to consumers and that gives us a lot of pride. Um, we enjoy that connection. I think it's really important. And, and that's been something the industry has talked about since I, since I got into farming and we've kind of led forward with that. So the cheese plant is a good way for consumers to connect and have product more directly from our farm. The beef was the, you know, the, the initial step forward into that. And just having that awareness and that dialogue, everything we do, we do have the consumer in mind, what they want. You know, we've got a lot of strong personalities on the farm as far as where the future goes and how we crop and what the opportunities are and trying to figure out as we move along. There's so many gains that have been made across all sectors, but I know, you know, you can Google quickly and find that dairy, our carbon footprint is uh, among the lowest in the world for dairy production. We continue to get more efficient from crop production, how we feed our animals, working with nutritionists, genetics. Um, part of the barn fire story that spun forward was an investment in higher genetic animals and doing flush work and, and propagating the most efficient possible animals for our farm um, from the components to feed efficiency. So there's, there's technology and science behind it. There's, you know, dirt on your boots, getting out in the field and, and working from that angle and figuring out how to try and do things better. I mean, by and large, the plows are parked. We're not tilling soil. I don't think the average consumer really understands how much things have changed on the farm, how much things have advanced and how much that's protected us, you know, even in the most extreme conditions of heat waves and, and variability in weather and being able to get a crop off every year at harvest time. In my mind, I know how fine the line is between starvation and getting a crop off. And it blows me away that on a global scale, we seem to, you know, whether we're snowed under or frozen in or, uh, fighting rain after rain uh, in the fall or whatever the case is, a drought and a shitty crop, that it does end up with enough food to go around. Coralie, do you hope your kids continue the farming tradition? Do you think they will? Are you already having those conversations oh. as a family? We are having those conversations because uh, right now it's just Jeff and I um, in the business running it. And I think for both of us, we have questioned, do we want our kids to have this stress? Um, we've expanded, you know, we also have seed potatoes. Um, 
talking about sustainability. We have a composting project that captures carbon, but of course, because we do it ourselves, it's not large enough to actually get credits for. And I think, I think that's sad because I think everything everyone does towards sustainability, climate change, agriculture, it's all the little things that can add up to, to big things and change um, for our future, for all of our futures. So I think we're still not sure <laughs> where we want the farm to go for our children. Well, I it's think a lot. Agriculture is the, the farms get bigger, the capital investment, the capital tied up, the return on that capital is, um, you know, from a cash flow standpoint, extremely challenging across the industry. Um, a lot of the wealth is built on, on, you know, inflating assets, not so much on the ability of the business to, to generate cash. So those are huge concerns as you as you go down that path and you see that most farms continue to get bigger. Um, our mix is quite diversified, which comes with a lot of challenges. It's not as easy to grow and get uh, large and compete with the, with neighbors who are maybe a little more focused on one specific uh, you know part of the industry. So I don't know. I guess that's being very open about. Um, they're going to have to be passionate about it. They're going to have to want want to show up and love agriculture and. I think the appreciation side is there. Um, you know, I, I think most consumers like us, it's hard to know how to approach and when to approach, but you, you get the odd experience in the city where people, you know, realize you're from ag, comment, appreciate what you're doing. And those things go a long ways. Hmm. I wanted to read this. People can check out lakesidefarmstead.com. That's where they can learn more about your cheese and your beef program and all the cool stuff that you've been doing over the past number of years. Uh, but this is from Twyla Campbell, who's uh, certainly one of the more recognizable food writers uh, across the country. Uh, she says, I'll keep repeating what I believe to be true and what I've said for the past 15 years in my food writing. We need to support the farmers and ranchers who care about the land on which they humanely raise their animals. We need to encourage and support the cheesemakers and bakers, the crop growers, the millers, butchers, and independent restaurants whose chefs source directly from conscientious producers. We need food artisans to create food that's made with love and passion and care and devotion. Uh, probably not an accident that you put that up on your website. And, and, and there's words that jump out at me that are pretty obvious, right? Like ranchers who care about the land, farmers who humanely raise their animals. Corley, I feel like I see it on your face that that's resonating with you right now. Well, yeah, like we put a lot of work into that website. And if people look through the website, it is about honoring um, the history and the heritage of uh, Jeff and I are both from family farms, um, both had grandparents that immigrated. And, uh, you know, people like to call us factory farms and, and that. And the reality is that most farms aren't like that. Um, especially in Canada, like we are still, I still consider us small, even though we are able to support um, a lot of staff and, and local community people have jobs here that, that through our business, we support them. So for us, it's hugely about community and Twyla's Campbell, like Twyla's um, quote that she gave us to put on the website, it, it was bang on. Like I read that and I just, I couldn't stop smiling because it epitomizes everything that we stand for on our farm. And she's been here numerous times, eaten food, uh, shared meals with us, toured the farm. Um, I mean, she's just a fantastic advocate for food. And I think what Twyla alludes to there, and it's a good, it's a good message across it when it comes to food and, and a lot of what we want to offer 
people that come out to the farm and, and can see it. And, you know, even if they only experience that once or once or twice a year, it's an experience and that's what food should be. And, and it involves knowing where the food comes from, the realities of what that means when it comes to animal agriculture. And I've never had people come out to the farm and tour around and not be blown away by pretty much everything, just the details, the care, the staff, uh, the way everybody interacts and I, it enhances the experience, it enhances the quality of food, and it enhances, you know, that life experience. How many things do we do in life where that's a, a massive part of it? You have a wedding, you have a meal, and sharing food and, and uh, having that experience with people is a big part of our culture and our life. Carissa says, thanks for what you do and how you do it. She says, we're trying to eat better, and that includes animal protein, avoiding sugar, and avoiding overly processed foods where possible. Uh, Dwayne just says, without farmers, we don't eat. And I like this one from Deborah. We'll, we'll, we'll offer this to you in closing. Deborah says, I love these interviews with honest, down to earth folks. Plus, they have a Beatles photo. <laughs> so you scored points with Deborah this morning. Jeff and Coralie Nona, you can find more about what they're doing at Lake Said, uh, Lakestead, Lakeside Farmstead. Yee, lakesidefarmstead.com. It's great to see both your faces. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks, Thank you. Yeah, you got it. So those are some real life producers. That's a family farm operation. Another perspective uh, to add into the mix uh, when it comes to conversations about what we eat, how it's grown, how it's raised, uh, how it's killed, how it's marketed. We never want to shy away from these types of conversations. I appreciate everything that we're seeing here on the live chat. Lots of chat. Um, Lots of chat. Johnny, you do, you've you've obviously got your own perspective. <laughs> you were gonna go. Well, no, and I just wanted like because yeah. you know you and your wife. Uh, what do you call it? A life it, live the vegan lifestyle. You guys are vegans, like whatever. My brother lives we, a vegan lifestyle. So. Yeah, we are. I like to call myself plant based, and one of plant the reasons okay. is uh, because of all the uh, just the the hatred and the divisiveness, and just that came along with saying vegan. I. Uh, I made a choice uh, years ago, about five, to remove myself kind of from, I kind of told myself the, the rest of my life, the other half of my life, I'm, I'm going to kind of remove myself from as much suffering as I can. So that's why we made the decision to do it. But at the same time, you know, animals suffer, but so do humans. And that suffering is, is, is real too. And farmers, like you saw them, I talked to them off camera over the weekend. These aren't bad people. And I don't believe that farmers are bad people. And so my wife especially <laughs> is more passionate than I am, but uh, we try to counteract everything we do. So although we don't buy meat from farmers, you better believe we're at the farmer's market every yeah. weekend. We go to the local uh, you know, setups at the farms. We buy the crappy looking vegetables because we know those ones are being thrown out in the garbage first. We're trying to do everything we can and we're trying to talk to people. And that's the biggest thing. Like we, we can't silence people and yell at people and shut them down just because of our opinions. Uh, I like what Coralie said about, you know, there's still questions about how veganism affects the environment. And that's true. We got to keep talking. We got to keep, uh, you know, letting people have their opinions and voicing them and not shutting people down. So uh, I, I'm not perfect. I'm continuing to learn every day. That's uh, what I'm doing. Man, I'm just trying to do the best I can. I right? love that perspective. And I, and I can't stand hearing that Jeff and Cora Lee have people piling on them for the barn fire and saying really horrific things about that. And it also really troubles me to hear that people are piling on folks that, that choose to shape their diet a certain way or choose mm -hmm. to live a certain lifestyle. Like it's, it's really quite frankly, not 
anyone's business what you eat. It's it's hard because I ate meat for thirty years. Do you think it's just do people farmers, feel threatened or why do why do you what do, what do you think is this like people people kind of roll their you know people always say how do you tell if somebody's a vegan just ask them they'll tell you know whatever the joke is but but at the same time like so what so that person wants yeah. to make that choice from the, so what yeah. in so many ways is if I choose to eat prime rib five times a week it's, so what it's hard because people are so passionate and things are so divisive these days but like again I'll just stress that we need to let everyone in on the conversation everyone needs to be able to talk and uh, just keep learning keep 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 getting more info and, and trying to live the best way you can and it, it is like am I the way is the way I'm living perfect probably not but I'm just trying to trying to do what I think works best to center myself and make yeah. me feel the best and that's all I can do right so but that's all that matters yeah right like when my brother my brother made made a big evolution over the course of several years but and I won't sit here and speak for him but but he's made changes to his diet and yeah. and, and he's a, a you know he's living that vegan lifestyle now too plant-based he would probably prefer maybe to say as well and not to reveal too much but like your family farmers yeah like oh yeah so oh th- for sure that's a big thing for him right? yeah i mean he, i even i always joke you know my wife really loves oat milk for her lattes and my family's a big dairy farming family and i'm always like i always say to her babe can we at least have <laughs> like let's at least make sure we have some cow's milk in the fridge at all times yeah. just as a, as an homage to the family i prefer cow's milk doesn't yeah. matter but but really when it all comes down to it i asked my brother about it because i'm curious not in a in a confrontational way far from it um mm-hmm. and for him it's just like he feels better yeah it makes him feel better and i don't think and I, and I think like all i hope with this show and the goal of this show and and if this you know if we accomplish anything with real talk it's to have meaningful challenging conversations in the gray zone right not nothing you know some things down. are black and white sure but most things are shades of gray yeah and to not just tell someone that you know we believe that their perspective's junk because it doesn't align with ours that's yeah. not how you run a talk show and i don't believe that it's how people should conduct their relationships and i respect you for that and that's why i'm here like you know i don't eat meat i know you eat a ton of meat well, not a ton but you know what i mean but like more also, than you do anyway yeah i know people are going to jump on me when they say you're not you're not removing yourself from the suffering i know that okay i drive a car i know it affects the environment i have a cell phone with plastic in it like you know i again i'm just trying to do the best i can and i don't think it's perfect and i don't think it's the right way and i would never tell people this is how you should live only but you know at the same time you know, I am passionate about it. And again, my wife is way more passionate. I'm sure she's listening right now and I get home. We got to so get, fun. we've got to get your wife on the show. Sometimes. She's I would very, love to have her very on knowledgeable. She's taught me so much. And like I said, we counteract things, you know, if, Hey, we're, we're not, we realize farmers like, like that person said on the, te- on the chat line today, farmers, if we didn't have them, we wouldn't be alive literally. So yeah. we try to go out and support them in other ways as much as we can to counteract and balance things out. We had uh, an amazing opportunity uh, over the course of the weekend. Speaking of like better understanding where people are coming from and seeking to understand. That's like, I feel like I want to base my whole life on that idea, seeking to understand. Uh, Of course, Sunday was the Kentucky Derby. And I don't know if everybody watched it. I'm not like a huge horse racing fan. I'm not obsessed with it, but I sure think it's cool. And I don't know if you had a chance to check it out, Real Talkers, but on Sunday, the Kentucky Derby, the 148th running, wound up being the second biggest upset of all time. 
the second biggest upset in almost 150 years. Now, I had heard on The Hedge, which is uh, the new show we're putting out with Andrew Walker, The Hedge, that Messier, (laughs) check this out, Johnny, I've got it up on the screen right now. Messier was the horse we wanted. It had an Alberta connection. But instead, it was this horse that came out of nowhere. Rich Strike was not even registered, was not even in the race, not even to be run until a couple of days before. Uh, Rich Strike sneaks its way in at 80 to 1 odds and comes out of nowhere at 80 to 1 to win the 148th running of the Kentucky Derby. Absolutely bananas. Who got rich? That's what I want to know. And I'm sure, like, thehedgepod.com, go there now. We're going to be talking about this. Yeah. Because I know we don't talk about, you know, horse racing a lot, but I'm sure Andrew Walker is banging his head on the table. We're we're all like, why didn't we put $50? (laughs) I know why we didn't, because uh, the average, this this is the second time that something this big has happened in almost 150 years. That's why. But you know, there was one person somewhere that put 10 grand on rich strike and maybe instead of putting the 10 grand on one next time just spread it out because you never know who's going <laughs> your bets like, what, if you bet a hundred bucks it was the payout was eight thousand so if you bet a thousand you're winning 80 grand like yeah geez, exactly geez. yeah exactly so so we were lucky enough wyatt and i our, our little guy uh to watch the race on the live screens at uh century mile uh we were guests of the horseman's benevolent and protective association of alberta the hbpa and we're grateful for that invite we had so much fun and what I loved it, why it got to meet the jockeys and he got to meet the owners and the trainers. And that, that's Rod, the trainer that took us around. He, he, yeah, he's uh, responsible for four Canadian Derby championships. OK, yeah, but he got to meet the horses. He well. got to meet the racehorses, <laughs> these beautiful thoroughbreds, these magnificent animals. And we were lucky enough to get back behind the barns. But, but you know what? The, even even these these uh, people involved in horse racing and the industry that employs thousands and thousands of people across the country as well, they know that they have messaging that they want to get out there. They know that people have questions about how the racehorses are treated. Here we go, another and one. And these are fair <laughs> questions, right? I mean, I like grew up in Calgary. We could get into rodeo, We could talk about chuck wagon racing. Yeah. We could talk about the rodeo. We can talk about whatever. And uh, just a wonderful afternoon at the track. Um, you got to be careful. You got to provide context. When you say I had a wonderful afternoon at the track with my six-year-old, people are going, what were <laughs> Degenerate. You like you left him in the truck while you went and hit the slot machines or what? No, it was family friendly, wonderful, had an amazing time. But they're under they understand uh, that they want people to have a clear uh, concept of of how these animals are treated and what the culture of that sport is and what the future of the sport looks like. And and I thought that that kind of fit. It dovetailed nicely with the conversation that we were having here today. Uh, I do recommend you get your kids out. We had so much fun out there. We got to keep going on that conversation, too. And I'm sure we will. Like. Oh, sure. There's different things going on in California with the rodeos and how they're banning and stuff. Well, in our home city, have you seen what's going on? There's a big petition out right now with with Lucy the Elephant, who's probably, is it fair to say, uh, Canada's most controversial? (sighs) Yeah zoo scenario which is lucy the elephant in edmonton people saying this elephant doesn't belong in edmonton and and they've had veterinarian reports through the years that are that are saying she's she's too sick to move her she bob could barker she could die if you tried to move her to the sanctuary in california bob barker has advocated for her years, yeah. transport for years i had a chance actually to interview bob barker about that the former host of the prices really? right yeah yeah on this show uh, not on this show. No, years ago. And actually, ah. but on this show, I talked, this was many months ago. I talked about it. People have asked me, uh, this is one of my favorite questions because I like firing it back at people. But someone will say like, what's something you've changed your mind on over the years? Exactly. 
And that was an issue when I interviewed, if, if we could find the archive footage, it was back when I was hosting a TV show called Breakfast Television. Um, but, but Bob and I kind of like, I won't say locked horns. I mean, he's a legend and you want to sort of like treat him with respect. But at sure. the same time, I, I did ask him a couple pointed questions when he was in Edmonton, sort of like, what's, you know, what's your background with regards to the understanding you have about these mm-hmm. specific scenarios for you to show up and demand that Lucy be moved, implying that the people responsible for her care don't care about her. And he changed your perspective. Well, I mean, I don't know if he did directly, but it was part it was sort of like a longer sort of a longer investigation for me and how I felt about it uh, with regards to to whether or not Lucy should be transported and and bigger picture the roles that gosh did we want to bite this one off right now we're supposed to be wrapping up the show but but sometimes real talk just happens the the concept of zoos or the the role that zoos play the, the evolution of zoos but they really are at least the successful ones are evolving because they have to and I think they're becoming more focused on education, rehabilitation. You're seeing less celebration about like this zoo just got orca whales. Yeah. And everyone's going, uh, right. And this dude just got new elephants. Everyone's going, I don't know about that. This was another thing. When I stopped eating meat, I was like, the one thing I, 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 I agree with on zoos is we got to get people closer to animals so they'll respect and understand and love them and how else do you get a kid right next to to, like you said an orca or a bear or a a tiger or whatever but uh, the one thing i've been using this line i've been using the last five years is i keep reminding myself johnny just keep refining your perspective don't push anything out because did, did i think when i was 20 eating you know meat every day that i would not be eating meat when i was 35 I had no idea. So the, like you said, talking to Bob Barker, like your opinion can change literally on a dime when you come to a realization and you get that aha moment, right? Yeah. So we just got to, we can't silence anyone. We got to keep talking because if you don't, how are you going to refine your perspective at all? Yeah, you know? so. I think it's okay to change your mind and I think it's okay to not change your mind. And the one thing that we're going to hold to, refine your perspective. We, can, I can just we keep reminding myself, that? when I hear that, someone going on a rant and I don't agree, I say, listen, yes. keep refining your perspective. Put yourself in this person's shoes. Where did they come from? Did, you know, Like you said, these farmers, they grow. It's a family business. How? Yeah. Who am I to say something about someone who's been doing something for generations and generations, you know? So it feels like a good time to mention our friends at Friesen brothers at Friesen.com. I was there over the weekend, ran into a real talker on the way in and ran into a real talker on the way out. And the real talker on the way out, you know who you are. You made my entire weekend with what you said, and you know, I can't repeat it on the show. I want to know who I'll tell you later. Heat up the grill season is here at Friesen Brothers. Everything you need for your perfect Alberta barbecue, whatever the weather. Now, if that's great smoker favorites out of the butcher shop with Alberta beef, Alberta pork, Alberta chicken, you can talk to their in-store butchers, let them know exactly what you need. Also, a lot of meat alternative barbecue options available. Plus, their garden center opened just this past week. They've got baskets and planters and seeds and vegetable plants and everything else to give you a head start on your summer growing season. Friesen Brothers for more than 65 years proudly. Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Our friends at Local Environmental are getting set for another trash talk coming up this Friday. By the way, YouTube was giving us fits on Friday. 
The and Gremlins. So you, the Gremlins were at it. If you missed Trash Talk on our regular YouTube stream, check out our videos link. We posted the full show uninterrupted. Johnny's always got a backup video rolling. It goes up every Saturday. It morning. goes up every Saturday. Appreciate that. You can check it out. And thanks for those of you that subscribe to our Real Talk Ryan Jesperson YouTube channel. Local environmental services. Some people say it's only garbage, but not to them. They believe communities deserve better. That means better service, better prices, and more support for local causes. You can learn more about them at localenvironmental.ca and send us your trash talk to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park are particularly excited about the special summer blizzard lineup. They've just rolled it up at the Dairy Queens and Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and in Sherwood Park at Baseline Road. That includes the Nestle Drumstick with Peanuts Blizzard Treat, the Very Cherry Chip Blizzard Treat, and the Girl Guides Chocolatey Mint Cookie Blizzard Treat for the kids don't ignore the Oreo Dirt Pie Blizzard Treat. You know that one's going to get them excited. And when you visit the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton in Sherwood Park, you make sure you let them know you're there because of real talk. The first show of every week, thanks to our friends at Kubi Energy. You can check out what they do in solar. Get a free quote today at kubienergy.ca. They get us started on the right foot. They get us seeking out the positives, the good news stories. So the week goes the way it's supposed to. We call it positive reflections. And I love this one from Becky. Becky sent us this email. She said, I want to tell you about a little project in our town that's making my heart feel so much lighter lately. She says, the little guy in this photo we're showing you is Hunter. Now, Hunter and his mom, Caitlin, have started a community pantry in the community of Wainwright, a great military town just east of Edmonton. What's up, Wainwright? Becky says they started small, just a hutch that they refurbished. They put it in a convenient location. They filled it with everyday needs like snacks and food and and toiletries. And they put up a sign saying, take what you need and leave what you can. And over the first few days and nights, people helped themselves to things they needed from the pantry. And Caitlin was posting updates on Facebook, uh, what had been used, what was in there. And she added more items based on what she noticed was being used and on suggestions from the public. And that's when the real magic started. Every day when she checks the pantry, she's finding items that have been left by others. People are stopping her in stores and paying for the things that she's purchasing. And when she looked up, uh, putting up these pantries in other locations around town, realized she's need to buy insurance. Guess what? Community members donated enough to cover the cost of the insurance. Becky says this little project that started with one little boy, Hunter, and his community-minded mom, Caitlin, has inspired people through our entire community. We look forward every day to Caitlin's updates. We're eager to hear what's been useful to people and even more what donations have been made. In a time where it can be easy to be overwhelmed by negativity and divisiveness, this amazing little project has restored my faith in humanity. Becky says if you want to learn more about it, you can check it out on Facebook at Hunter's Little Pantry. I absolutely love that story, Becky, and thank you so much for sharing. And Hunter, boy, way to go. That's absolutely fantastic. Look at him there. And then, Johnny, you were telling us about a story that I felt is a perfect fit for positive reflections. Yeah. As millions of Canadians look to contribute or do what they can when it comes to the war in Ukraine. Yeah, a good friend of mine, Nestor Delano. You'll know him as DJ Nestor Delano, big DJ in the city. Uh, he started YEG for Ukraine. And uh, they originally thought they were going to raise, you know, a few grand to buy some uh, supplies and stuff. Uh, He's Polish uh, to go down to Poland and give these out to uh, Ukrainians fleeing 
Uh, and it ended up raising close to a hundred grand. So I'm looking at it live right now, you can go to GoFundMe.com, check out Yag for Ukraine. That's the number four, Yag for Ukraine. Johnny, right now they're at ninety-seven thousand nine hundred sixty-seven bucks. So they've almost got to two hundred grand now. They've re-upped and now they've become an official charity. Uh, they've reached out to other cities. Uh, y Art uh, YVR for Ukraine is getting started up this week as well as Toronto and Ottawa and Montreal. Uh, so if anyone wants to donate, please go to the site. And uh, just last week, uh, they also uh, got donated uh, by an anonymous donor uh, 500 tourniquets, which they sent out wow. to Ukraine to help on the front line. So Lots of good things going on with YEG for Ukraine and just an amazing initiative. If you want to go and donate anything you can, they're looking to get to a a quarter million is what they're shooting for this time. This is something that you can do right now from the comfort of your own home. It takes just a couple of minutes. Again, Yeg for Ukraine at GoFundMe.com. We'll continue to follow stories. We've got some great interviews booked coming up this week. Canadians doing what they can to make an impact there. And of course, also coming up tomorrow on the show. Northwest Fest, Canada's longest-running documentary film festival, including the powerful film Love in the Time of Fentanyl. We've got a roundtable coming up on that. We're going to talk to the filmmaker. We're going to learn more about the story and the message that Canadians need to receive as this opioid crisis continues to claim so many lives. It's the other health crisis that's not being ignored but not getting the attention it needs through these past couple of years of covid These documentary filmmakers hoping to change that. These conversations continue. We know through the days we appreciate the feedback you send us, including suggestions for upcoming segments. Later this week, we'll learn more about Twitter bots. And of course, coming up on Friday, our Real Talk Roundtable circular calendars. Now it's The Strategist joining us. Five great shows from Monday to Friday this week. We're grateful to have you here with us. Thanks for liking, subscribing, and sharing our content. Make it a great rest of your Monday, and we'll talk to you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, technical producer John Hicks, managing director Josh Dunford, account coordinator Lawrence Sterlego, general manager Katie Cook-Chivers, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.